It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. Well, two very different things are on the agenda for this episode, but uh, it's the same brilliant mind bringing them here. Not mine, uh, but our, my guest, actually. First is the soul-searching, uh, soul-expressing book of the Bible called the Psalms. Um, really means songs. Um, I don't think any book in the Bible explores such a depth and, and width and, and, and breadth of, of human emotions, anger, joy, love, fear, hope, the list goes on. Renowned scholar, Dr. Peter Kreef's recent book takes a deep dive into a few of the Psalms and has written a passionate book called Wisdom from the Psalms. Now, the second topic is the most recent book. Um, and it's really a lot more hard hitting. It's really a departure from the feel good spirituality that we all love and adore. It's really a sober look on what's wrong What's wrong with this world? What's destroying Western civilization? And that's exactly what the book's called, How to Destroy Western Civilization and Other Ideas from the Cultural Abyss. And that sounds so much like Dr. Peter Crave. He's a philosophy professor at Boston College and the King's College, and he joins me now. Welcome, Dr. Crave. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Well, it's always a privilege to, to talk with you. I mean, we're going to start with the bang because we're going to talk about what's, what's destroying Western civilization. But before you answer, bang, I want to... That's a, <laughs> um, before uh, I want you to answer, I'm going to read the first really two graphs of your of the book because it kind of explains everything. It says the single most necessary thing we can possibly do to save our civil civilization, the single most necessary thing citizens can ever do to save their civilization at all times and all places and in all cultures, whether they are good or evil, religious or irreligious, ancient or modern, is to have children. If you don't have children, your civilization will cease to exist. Before you can be good or evil, religious or irreligious, you must exist. So that's really how you start out the book. What prompted you to kind of create, write this book? Common sense uh, and the uncommonness of common sense that I see around me. Civilization seems to be self-destructive in many ways, and this is the first way. We are not having children. We do not have faith in the future. People say, I don't want to bring children into this terrible world. I say, oh, this terrible world with uh, anesthetics and advanced medical care and uh, a lot of safety nets and a greater level of uh, riches and a lower level of poverty than almost any other civilization in history and a civilization with plenty of amusements and a civilization whose middle-class existence would be the envy of kings and emperors in the past. That's a civilization that's, that's so bad you don't want to bring people into it. What's behind that? What's behind that idea that I don't want, you know, oh, this world's so bad, I don't want to bring children into this world. What really is a, is, is a foundation of that statement? I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm certainly not God. I don't see any human heart. That seems so depraved and deep to me that it seems supernatural. It means that uh, I don't love life anymore. I, I resent life. I, I, I make demands that nobody else de made before in history. I do not accept my limitations. Uh, and, and, and therefore, I rebel against this world. It's, it's too full of stuff. 
full of nature, too, too full of kids, too, too, too many ways that invite me to, uh, to sacrifice myself for other people. I don't want to do that. I want, uh-huh. to, I, I want to be self-affirming. I want to hug myself to myself. I want to clench my life into my own fist and not open it and not give my heart to anybody because I don't want my heart to be broken. All free. You, you know, one of the things you talk about in you, actually the first salvo here, I mean, it basically you're saying that one, I, I, I didn't know the statistic, but it makes sense. One third of children were conceived in America and Canada are actually aborted. He says, I think our ancestors would literally not be able to believe that fact. I, I find it hard to believe that fact, that we have aborted one third of the children conceived. The same proportion, apparently, historians tell us, as were killed by the Aztecs uh, and presumably by the Canaanites, by very similar methods, by ripping the heart out of a living baby and giving the heart into the fires of the demon that they were worshiping. Uh, the demon is uh, much more concealed today, but I think that's the ultimate source of our hatred of life. Because it's the devil that hates life. Yeah, are we kind of just, we're just ignoring our sin or ignoring our idea that, you know, there's something wrong with us? We think because we've got technology, um, mm-hmm. the, sin isn't, it, the sin isn't really sin at all. Yeah, we got uh, white coats and clipboards, uh, and therefore it's disguised, it's clean, it's dignified, it's respectful. Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking to another um, uh, uh, guest about the idea of abortion. And I said, you know, if you if you actually go on Priest for Life and look at some of those graphic photos of aborted uh, babies, I, I find I find it hard to believe that you would be pro-choice after that or for abortion after that. It's just it's just the most heinous thing you've ever seen. This is not a collection. That's, that's of, true, but we're, we're not living in a free society. It's, it's illegal to show those photographs. Wow. And, and that's reasonable. I mean, if you're going to kill, why not lie? Yeah. Do you, that's do you really think the Nazis would have publicized the Holocaust? No. I mean, and the way it shows because most of those regular Germans after the war, when they were shown the, the concentration camps and the, and the ovens, you know, were at Paul. They said, we just didn't know what was going on. And they, they were within a mile of the place, less than a mile. I think but they, they knew, they just didn't see. Yeah. If they don't see it. It's hard to, you know, I suppose, you know, if you if you saw a cow being slaughtered, you'd become a vegetarian, too, probably. You know, I mean, it's pretty brutal stuff. Um, but you also talk about, you know, the Brave New World, that book that we all read in high school, um, you know, which was that scary thing about control of the government and all that. You actually say that, um, you know, we did the children are manufactured and there are no parents or no families. That's, that was a very scary thing for us in, in high school, uh, this Brave New World book. And, and yet... You say this is what we've we've actually we're close to it now. Let me tell you one of the scariest experiences I ever had at Boston College. I uh, was teaching some freshmen, and I assigned Brave New World as reading over some vacation, uh, and I didn't prepare them for it. So during the class discussion, uh, I sensed that there was a deep misunderstanding, and I said, "You understand that this is a satire, right?" No. They were for Brave New World. They thought it was a utopia. Why wouldn't oh, anybody no. want to live in Brave New World? Everybody's happy there. Wow. Not wow. all of them, but a significant portion. So uh, this is why we're going to get it, because we want it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, the, 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 the thing that really scares me, you were you're talking about, you know, the... the 40 fundamental facts and you go like what can chicken little do so you've got 40 of these facts i've, I've highlighted a couple of them um epistemology to know know the difference between what we know and what we don't know explain that 
Are you asking what that means? Well, I mean, like, tell me more about like, because for the average person, you know, like I've said this to a lot of young people. It's like, why, why should I not? Why should I not do something? Why, why, why am I too young to do something? Is that you don't even know what you don't know. And that's a very scary thing to do. You know, only, only when, when people get wise, they really understand how little they know. Yeah. That is the mark of a wise person, you know. Well, my philosophical hero, Socrates, who Thomas Aquinas says was the greatest philosopher who ever lived. That's why I didn't need to write anything like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And even though Socrates was a pagan and an agnostic, he was very similar to Jesus in, in his humility. Mm -hmm. He classified all people into two classes, fools who think they are wise and the wise who know that they are fools. <laughs> Jesus classified people into two categories, saints who, think, who know they're sinners and sinners who think they're saints. Yeah. In other words, humility is the first virtue. If you don't have that, you can't receive anything else. Yeah. And, and humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Exactly. Um, exactly. Perfect yeah. definition of humility. You know, the point six, I'm, I'm just going over the ones that I actually pulled out here. Point six, the most obvious and radical symptom of our sudden decline and the cause of many other symptoms, especially the decline of stable families, is the sexual revolution. Revolution. And I, I would guess a lot of people would take umbrage with that because they think the sec sexual revolution was actually a good thing. You know? Well, it, uh, it makes a small segment of our society happy, uh, especially the rich uh, and especially those who don't want families. But, uh, I have seen on a number of occasions a button, usually on unhappy looking women uh, and on that button are the words, victim of the sexual revolution. Mm. I didn't have the courage to converse with them, but I'll, I'll bet they were all uh, victims of, of broken families and broken relationships. Mm. I was a kid, uh, which was back in the Jurassic age. I think the dinosaurs were wandering through our backyard then. Um, <laughs> I, was, uh, I must have known about 100 families, and I didn't know a single one that had a divorce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today, I know about 100 families. I don't know a single family that doesn't have a divorce in it. Wow. Why is it so hard for us to keep our marriages together? Why is sexual, the sexual revolution have, have a, I mean, I'm assuming that you're making this direct correlation between the sexual revolution and the, and the because, divorce. Because we believe our big media mouths, for instance, every, almost every commencement speaker tells us an enormous big lie. You can be whatever you want to be. Yeah. You can't. Like if you're five foot two and you want to be in the NBA, you can't be, that's pretty much not going to happen. Uh, that's a very good question. Why, why are families breaking up? Well, it started in the 60s, and that's the beginning of the sexual revolution. And once you detach sex from procreation and families and children, uh, it becomes no longer the reproductive system, but the entertainment system. Right. Entertain right. Entertainment is essentially selfish and individualistic. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really how you define marriage. I mean, if you're a society that defines marriage as creating the stability for children and for the community, it will be more important for you to keep that marriage together. But if yeah. you define marriage as uh, an institution to fulfill adult happiness, I yeah. think, and, and if I'm not happy anymore, I just simply leave, 
then you've made you've turned marriage into something that is not God's design. Right. Our our concept of happiness is very shallow. Whatever turns me on, whatever satisfies yeah. my desires. Uh, the only yeah. word "hap" or "chance" is in the word "happiness." So the first thing we think of to make us happy is the winning games of chance. I've, I've won the lottery; that makes me happy. The old yeah. Greek word for happiness, eudaimonia, is much deeper. It begins with eu, which means good, which means you can't be happy unless you're good. And then daimon means spirit. So it's a spiritual thing, it's not a material thing. And then ia, the last two letters, mean that it's an objective state. It's objectively real. You can be mistaken about it. You can think you're happy and you're not. Right, right, right. So marriage, marriage is not for, for personal happiness. It'll give you personal happiness, but it's always a byproduct. It's, it's a thing. It's like an elephant. And if you want to ride on an elephant, you have to conform to the elephant. It's a pre-existing entity. It's not the human invention. Yeah, I think that's why, you know, a lot of people are kind of, well, they actually hide, hold up marriage as sort of an idol as well. It's like, if I, I, could, if I could be married, I'd be, I'd be happy. I'd have, you know, this ultimate happiness. And I mean, I think Ernest Becker wrote that book, The, the Denial of Death, I think it was, and talked about that because people kind of um, got rid of God, they still needed this sort of um, freedom or, or, or salvation from some source. And a lot of it, this, our society created the romantic relationship instead of God, the, the romantic relationship then became the thing that was going to make us happy and spiritually sound. And we're finding, and it was never meant for that. Human, human, human beings are not meant to bear the, the weight of a soul of another human being. Um, and it, so, the, we're, we're designed not in Harvard or in Hollywood, we're designed in heaven. And we're designed yeah. to have a, uh, some sort of first thing, some sort of absolute, some sort of greatest good. And if it's not God, it's going to be an idol. If you don't worship yeah. the lamb, you're going to probably worship either the donkey or the elephant. <laughs> very true, very true. But you know, and then the, and again, it's sort of the part of, or parcel and parcel of what sexual evolution is, is it's the, the, the moral relativism. And that's kind of the cause behind the cause. Of the sexual revolution, you know, but moral moral relativism, and a lot of people don't understand the term. What it, what it actually means is means, you know, there's no there's no fixed point, right? Yeah, and it means that morality is a game that we invented. It's man made. It's not it's not natural. It's not uh, God made. Uh, it's it's not uh, a set of objective laws like the laws of mathematics. But uh, uh, we made it, so we can change it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no society has ever survived that believed that. In fact, no society has ever uh, existed that believed that, except ours. We're the first society in history, the majority of whose teachers, both formal and informal, both in universities and in popular media, no longer believe that uh, morality is an absolute objective universal thing. It's a, a, a personal subjective invention. This is my way. Yeah. And what should scare people, though, too, is that you bring out that the four longest lasting um, cultures in history are the foremost family-friendly ones. Yeah, yep. the Jewish thirty-five hundred years, the Confucian twenty-one hundred years, Islamic 1400 years, Roman four seven hundred years. I mean, if you if you want, you know, a a you know a um, cautionary tale. I mean, history is full of them. Well, we have only three possible futures, logically possible. Uh, mm -hmm. Number one, we will refute history's greatest law and most 
clear law uh, and we will thrive and we will flourish and we'll be happy even though we have no morality and no religion and no family and uh, uh, no unselfish love uh, unlikely number two we will repent and uh, uh, survive we will uh, go back and undo our mistake which has happened before in history Uh, history Mm -hmm. is not doomed or three we will continue in the same direction and the garbage will go down the drain those are the well, only three possibilities. Wow. Um, we're going to take a break right now on um, Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We're going to come back with Dr. Buprecht. And we're going to talk about the Psalms and the wisdom in the Psalms because there's a lot of it. We'll be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Okay, we're back with uh, Dr. Peter Kraft talking about his two books. Uh, the one, which is this very scary book about the uh, how to destroy Western civilization, and uh, how do you do that? Is we just stay on the same path we are on, which is you know aborting you know children and the. But I want to talk about the Psalms before we do that. I just wanted to bring up a point that I thought was very interesting. Um, you know, the, an AP story that came out um, this week, or and it's actually building on another story about how, you know, we're, uh, the birth rate has gone down. Um, and we're like the lowest since the Great Depression. And the reasons behind it were, the AP story said it was um, the economic factors and people delaying marriage and having, and delaying having children. So they're having fewer children. And I thought, why do you not mention abortion? I mean, you've got 62 plus million children who have been aborted before they even come out of the womb. And yet they never, they never mentioned that as a factor, which is absolutely um, irresponsible. It's like a German, it's like a German newspaper wondering why there are so few, few Jews in Germany and not mentioning the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't understand that. When, if you, if you look at the statistics that the number one cause of death is abortion, um, it is, it far outpaces heart disease and cancer. And yet we never, we never talk about it. If you're losing a million um, people a year at anything, cancer, I mean, look at that, over 500,000 have died from coronavirus and we're up in arms. We're not up in, we're not up in arms about, um, about nearly a million children who've been aborted. So... We used to worry about the population explosion. Now the worry is exactly the opposite. We're, uh, there's no uh, nation in Western civilization that, uh, that that comes up to replacement. Yeah. We're all dying. Yeah. And, you know, we're killing ourselves, basically. Yeah. Um, but I want to move on to the Psalms because the Psalms really are the spiritual positiveness of this, this discussion. You know, I really love the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms, but... You've chosen just 10 to look at in that book, The Wisdom of the Psalms, and probably some of the most well-known, like the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd. Um, But beyond that one, why these 10 that you chose? Well, because I'm pretty ordinary and commonsensical, and I suspect that most people love these psalms the most, as I do. They're the most popular, they're the most well-known, and I think they're the most uh, profound and beautiful. Yeah. You know, a lot of people um, you know, focus on David, who wrote a great deal of the Psalms. But did David write all the Psalms, King David? No, we don't know exactly how many. Some of them come to us from the earliest manuscripts labeled a Psalm of David. That's about half of them. And uh, scholars are not 
sure uh, who wrote the others. One of them is called Asaph. Uh, mm-hmm. most, of, most of the first uh, half of the Book of Psalms are by David. I see. Um, but, you know, what exactly are the Psalms? I was taught that they were the songs, that they were poems. What are they? Well, there are three things. Uh, they're poems, they're poetry. They're not rhymed or rhythmed, but uh, that's, I think, providential because they can translate well into other languages. It doesn't depend on sound. Uh, uh, and they're also songs to sing aloud. Uh, the ancients didn't usually have silent reading. They saw books as we see sheet music, uh, instructions for performance. Yeah. And finally, most deeply of all, their prayers are poems that we write to God letters to God and, and songs that we sing to God in, in that relationship. Yeah. And they're the prayers that both Jews and Christians have concentrated on in their both public liturgies and private prayers more than any other. They're God's own inspired prayer book. I probably, the, the 23rd Psalm, as I said before, is probably the most well-known. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You say in the book, though, it's probably the most misunderstood psalm. Why? What's the misunderstanding about? What are we misunderstanding about Psalm 23? Well, what's not misunderstood is the things that are said about the Lord. He mm-hmm. is our shepherd. He, he guides us. He's compassionate. He's kind. He's incredibly merciful. That's true. But what's forgotten is the very first word, the Lord. Who is the Lord? Mm-hmm. The Lord is the almighty uh creator, uh, the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-just, all-perfect being that no other society knew. All the other gods of all the other religions in the world are are partial and finite and and, and imperfect uh, Mm -hmm. in in many ways. This is the Lord, the Lord whom, if if you saw uh, face-to-face without anything in between you to protect you, you'd probably just dissolve the puff of smoke. And that almighty Lord condescends to become our shepherd in, in condescends to be a, a servant. Many right. Christians think that Judaism is all about law and Christianity is about love and Judaism is all about justice and Christianity is all about mercy. It's not true. Both justice mm-hmm. and mercy, there's both God's transcendence and God's imminence uh, front and center in both religions and both testaments. And then the other, the other, part of Psalm 23. I mean, it's a very short psalm. I mean, not very, but it's one of the shorter ones. I mean, I actually memorized it when I was in the, when I was eight years old in Sunday school class, um, is the the phrase, my cup runneth over. And the cup means, what you say, is the self. What does it mean when the psalmist says, my cup runneth over? It means that God gives us more than just pleasure, which is the satisfaction of our obvious external desires, and more even than just happiness, which is the satisfaction of of, a more deep and internal desire, gives us joy, which is always a surprise, more than we expect. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's not boring. Even happiness can be boring when you get everything that you want. Right, right. At the top of the mountain, there's no more places to climb. But but joy is endless and, and never boring. God is always surprising. Every time I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that whenever anybody meets God in the Bible, Old Testament or new, they're always surprised. He never fits into their little boxes. No. He gives, no. He gives them more uh, than they expect, often more than they can handle. You know, even Job, you know, who went through all of the, the terrible things of losing family and, 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 and property and stripped and, and his body was racked. Um, he had all these questions for God, but when he met God, he had no more questions. 
He didn't ask God why. He didn't, and, the, and so the presence of God just changes everything. Yeah, I love those last words of Job. I, I had heard about you with the hearing of the ear. Now I see you with the seeing of the eye. Now I repent in dust and ashes. What a fool I was to think that you were the answer man and I was the one who was going to ask you questions. You're asking me questions. Yeah, it's really powerful. And that brings up to me uh, Psalm 139. You talk about this. And this is a wonderful psalm that is not as, I don't think, as well known as the 23rd, but it certainly is well known among people who kind of read the psalms a lot. And it starts out, Lord, you know me. And I think just saying that phrase is just shatters you inside to say, Lord, you know me. And this is where we find out how, we pre how precious are we are to God at every stage of life from conception to natural death. Why did you, why did you choose 139? Because I'm a philosopher and philosophy is the search for truth, especially truth about good and evil, wisdom. Uh, and that psalm is a test uh, as to whether we really have a passionate and fundamental love for truth, for, not, mm -hmm. for light, for standing in the light, for knowing and being known by God. I think Nietzsche was probably the greatest, certainly the most passionate atheist in history. And he, he confessed in print that the reason he couldn't possibly believe in God was that if there is a God, God knows everything about me. And I couldn't, I couldn't live in a world where he saw my dark side. Thomas mm -hmm. is exactly the opposite. God, shine your light on me. Show me everything. I want, I want the truth, no matter how much it hurts. That's total honesty. That's, that's the difference between heaven and hell. Yeah. Right I mean, the whole idea is like you, and this is also this sort of idea from conception to natural death, you know, because Psalmist says, you saw my unformed body. I mean, yeah. that's, 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 you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, it's just, what is so important about this psalm, even above what you've told us already? The everythingness of it. God is not just the one who knows, but the one who knows everything. Where I came from, what I'm made of, uh, where I'm headed. Uh, he's inescapable. Uh, there are only two people uh, that you can never, ever escape for a single second, either in time or eternity. And that's yourself and God. Mm. And you can't know yourself without knowing God. Because God's your designer, God's your identity. Uh, if you're Hamlet, God is your Shakespeare. Hmm. You know, of course, the psalm um, that became famous during the Clinton era, um, Psalm 51. This is the plea of the sinner. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And this is David's psalm after he was caught in adultery and commits murder to cover it up. Um, what a, why did you choose this psalm? Because I'm a sinner. Because uh, this is the favorite psalm of many of the saints. It's the sinner psalm. And uh, the first qualification for being a saint is to know that you're a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really, I mean, it's kind of the pain of hell. I mean, this is the idea that you, you can't escape yourself. And I always try to tell people, it's like, you know, you can deny God's existence, but you can't escape God's existence. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's just, you, there is just nothing you can, I mean, your belief in God has nothing to do with whether God exists or not. It exists whether you believe in it or not. 
So, and what's what's wonderfully terrifying about that psalm is that David is quite aware of what repentance costs. He says to God, create in me a new heart, a clean uh -huh. heart. Don't just improve me. Don't just put a, a bandage on things. Don't just give me some drugs to take away the pain. Uh, do heart surgery. The heart of the matter. Yeah. There's, there's something in my heart that's rotten to the core. There's also something in my heart that loves you and, and, and seeks you. And that's what is, is motivating my prayer to you right now. But I want yeah. a new heart. And the word in Hebrew for create, barach, is distinct to the Hebrew language. No other ancient language has a concept of, of, of a God who can create something radically new out of nothing. God doesn't just improve our heart. He puts his own heart into us. He gives us to share in his own supernatural life. Have we, have we lost this sense of sin today? I mean, it seems like the psalmists have a big advantage over modern people. We, we explain away bad behavior with sociological or psychological problems to say I'm not responsible for my actions or, you know, I, my genes made me do it. Can the psalms still speak to generations today in the same way? Yes, because even though our society doesn't uh, reinforce that inner conscience, that sense that, of course, we're sinners, we know it. You can't totally rip up your moral motherboard. Mm -hmm. Thomas Aquinas says the natural law can never be permanently and totally effaced from the heart of man. It can only be temporarily disguised by, by bad habit. Yeah. Um, you know, it, just your last thoughts on the Psalms. I mean, there's so many of them, but, but what was your favorite one that you wrote about in this book? I mean, only 10, but, um, but what was your favorite one? I think Psalm 103. Uh, because that was my father's favorite psalm. And one of the last things he asked me to do for him before he died was to read that psalm. Mm. He loved it. it it's it's a, a, a praise of, of, of all the gifts of God. Mm -hmm. uh, gratitude, I think, is the, is the most fundamental psychological origin of all genuine religious piety. If you... Yes. If you if you're playing God, if you take his gifts for granted, if you say, I'm in control of my life, I don't need God, uh, that's about the most dangerous state of mind you can imagine. On the other hand, uh, attitude, even if you don't believe in God, even though you don't have a concept of that, if you feel this gratitude for, for life itself, you're on the way to religious. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. Um, Dr. Peter Crave, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And I want to talk about your two books, The Wisdom from the Psalms, which is what we, we have been talking about. And then, of course, we first talked about how to destroy Western civilization and other ideas from the cultural of this. I'll tell you, I mean, you have a mind that kind of runs the gamut of, of what is at stake in this, in this, in this world, you know, um, you know, it's not being it's not about being on the right side of, of history. It's about being on the right side of eternity. And um, you really got a grasp on that. I want to thank you so much. Read not the times, read the eternities. What, excuse me? Read not the times, read the eternities. Yes. <laughs> read not the times, the eternity. I gotcha. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. God bless you. God bless you too. And thank you all for listening to the Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.